American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. Good evening. My name is Josh Brown, and I'm Executive Director of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning and a member of the history faculty here at the Graduate Center. I'm pleased to welcome you this evening to the second program in a series of three public panels called Still Hazy After All These Years, marking the sesquicentennial of the start of the American Civil War. Now, it's a truism that 150 years after its start, the Civil War is still being fought, if for the most part without live ammunition. Tonight's panel is entitled The Great Divide, with a question mark, Civil War Myths and Misinformation, and we have with us a panel of distinguished historians and educators that will consider some of the many ways the history of America's greatest crisis has been excluded, overlooked, misinterpreted, and distorted in the name of commemoration and memory and, alas, learning. Our next speaker will be Gary Gallagher, who is the John L. Naw III Professor in the History of the American Civil War at the University of Virginia. Gary received his PhD at the University of Texas in Austin, and his substantial list of publications includes The Confederate War, Lee and His Generals in War and Memory, Lee and His Army in Confederate History, Causes One, Lost and Forgotten, How Hollywood and Popular Art Shape What We Know About the Civil War, and Hot Off the Presses, The Union War. Gary was founder and first president of the Association for the Preservation of Civil War Sites and has served on the board of the Civil War Trust. He has received many awards, including the Laney Prize for the Best Book on the Civil War, the William Woods Hassler Award for Contributions to Civil War Studies, the Lincoln Prize, and the Fletcher Pratt Award for the Best Nonfiction Book on the Civil War. I don't ever use images when I teach, so this is, this is right on the edge for me, <laughs> which means I'm about 25 years out of date, but that's the way it goes. And, and I guess I'm not on the edge because there's nothing up there. No, no, I'm teasing. I'm going to put my five images up at the end and just talk about them very briefly. I want to talk for, you're going to flash me in 10 minutes, okay. Uh, I want to talk about something that for the 25 years I've been teaching about the Civil War is the very hardest thing to get across to either students or groups of adults, and that is what union meant. Uh, Stan talked about how I like to talk about the United States rather than the Union, which is true when I'm talking about it as a war between two mid-19th century nation states. But the concept of union, the power it had in the mid-19th century, I think eludes modern Americans to a remarkable degree. That's what I want to talk about tonight. The, the loyal citizenry of the United States fought a war for union that also killed slavery. By loyal citizenry, I mean the citizens of the United States, that is the free states plus the people living in Missouri and Kentucky and Maryland and Delaware, and then you get a fifth one of those states, West Virginia, in the course of the war, of course. Uh, this conflict stretched across four years, claimed more than 800,000 United States casualties. Throughout that war, from 1861 to the end, Union remained the paramount goal, a fact clearly expressed by Abraham Lincoln in speeches and other statements designed to garner the widest popular support among the American citizenry. What Walt Whitman said of Lincoln in Union, in the wake of Lincoln's death applied equally to most loyal Americans. Unionism in its truest and amplest sense formed the hard pan of his character, wrote the poet, and that hard pan of unionism held millions of Americans to the task of suppressing the slaveholders' rebellion, even as the human and material cost escalated far beyond what anyone could have imagined in 1861. Whitman celebrated a union that carried great meaning for the mass 
of loyal citizens who joined him in equating it with the nation, with the union, the nation, the country, the United States. They used those interchangeably during the Civil War. Each of those uh, can be deployed to mean essentially the same thing. It represented for them, the union did, the cherished legacy of the founding generation, a democratic republic with a constitution that guaranteed political liberty and afforded individuals a chance to rise economically. From the perspective of loyal Americans, their republic stood as the only hope for democracy in a Western world that since the failed revolutions of the 1840s was perceived as moving away from democracy. Democracy was in retreat in Europe. Oligarchs, aristocrats, monarchists were asserting greater control, not lesser control in the Western world from this perspective in the United States. Uh, and when loyal Americans looked south, they saw an analog for those European aristocrats in slave-holding Southerners. They referred to them as oligarchs and aristocrats. Again and again and again, those terms come up constantly. They are the problem, uh, this slave-holding class. And it's a class that posed a direct threat not only to the long-term success of the Republic, but also to the future of small-d democracy in a world that had yet to embrace it. There's both a North American and a transatlantic dimension to their understanding of the slave-holding threat to the United States. Should armies of citizen soldiers fail to restore the Union, they believed that forces of privilege on both sides of the Atlantic could pronounce ordinary people incapable of self-government and render irrelevant the military sacrifices and political genius of the revolutionary generation. And the meaning of Union, this meaning of Union, I think, has been almost completely effaced from popular understanding of the Civil War. Uh, modern Americans often question why anyone would risk life or fortune for something as nebulous as the Union. A war to end slavery makes much more sense to us, uh, something powerfully reinforced in popular culture by films such as Glory and Gettysburg. Although Lincoln remains a towering figure, few Americans associate him with the widely held idea of Union, uh, as he put it in his second annual, uh, annual message to Congress in December 1862, as the last best hope of Earth. That's not just something Lincoln thought. That's a very common formulation among all classes of people in the United States. It's even true, this, this inability to grasp union is even true in the, in the world of civil war buffs who buy art. I can't resist saying this because I find it aggravating. Uh, that world of civil war art is a world of Confederates. It's a world of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, or Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee. Sometimes Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and their horses. Uh, you can combine them, combine them in many ways, but there they are. Uh, what you don't find in this art, except for Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, the Irish Brigade, because God love them, they had green flags, uh, and the artists <laughs> like to paint another color occasionally, or Union commanders at Gettysburg. Filter those classes of Union topics out, and you're left with nothing. Grant, no. Sherman, no. Give me Lee. Give me Grant. And if it weren't for Ken Burns' series and the Killer Angels and Ron Maxwell's translation of Killer Angels into Gettysburg, even Joshua Chamberlain would be largely unknown. I mean, Joshua Chamberlain was not a big deal for the Civil War generation. He's become a big deal. It's a measure of the power of popular culture that he's probably the best-known Union military officer. Now, if William Tecumseh Sherman could find out that Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain is the most famous Union military figure, I think he would have a problem with that. <laughs> I think he might deploy profanity. <laughs> so I think this meaning of union 
is gone, or largely gone, almost completely gone. Much Civil War scholarship over the past four decades also uh, has played down the centrality of union. Slavery and emancipation, which were unfairly marginalized for decades in writing about the conflict, have inspired a huge and rewarding literature since the 1960s. No longer can any serious student talk about the Civil War without talking about the ways in which African Americans <coughs> figured in the social and political and military elements of the drama. You simply cannot do it. Uh, but sometimes the focus on emancipation and race suggests that the war had no meaning apart from them, and especially that Union victory had little or no value without emancipation. Anyone remotely conversant with 19th century U.S. history knows that democracy is practiced in 1860, denied women, free and enslaved black people, and other groups' basic liberties and freedoms that most white people would have said were at the very center of the promise of the United States. Almost 99% of the residents in the free states were white, according to the 1860 census, 98.8% .8 to be precise. 96.5% of all the people in the loyal states were white. That includes those four slaveholding states that remained loyal. And the racial views of those mid-19th century white people offend our modern sensibilities. I, I'm, I'm bored with someone discovering that someone else was racist in the mid-19th century. That's the baseline. Tell me something that we don't know. When the neo-Confederates say, well, Abraham Lincoln was a racist, that's right, and the sun came up this morning. Now, what else do you have to tell me that's really interesting? Uh, that's just, that's, that's, uh, it makes my head hurt. That's so boring. But I think that a preoccupation with only the unsavory dimensions of the era yields a portrait dominated by racism, exclusion, and oppression that obscures as much as it reveals. Within the context of mid-19th century Western history, that is the Atlantic world, the United States offered by far the broadest political franchise and by far the most economic opportunity. You could actually rise through classes in the United States. Uh, doesn't mean everybody could, but a far greater chance here than elsewhere. Vast numbers of immigrants believe this. However difficult the circumstances they might find themselves in here in New York, our relocation in the United States promised a potentially brighter future. And there was a tremendous amount of coverage during the war to the fact that immigration remained strong during the Civil War. People continued to come in the midst of this cataclysmic military event, which to people who believed in Union was one of the great evidences of its power and why it was important to keep it together. Now, issues relating to the institution of slavery precipitated secession, as, as all of us will probably say this before we're finished. The only way you can conclude anything else is not to read any evidence from the time, which, of course, a lot of people do. They, make, uh, they reach all their judgments without really reading anything and then hold to them uh, doggedly. There's no question about that. And yet, the loyal citizenry initially gave little thought to emancipation in their quest to save the Union. Eventually. Most loyal citizens, even many Democrats, though profoundly prejudiced by 21st century standards, embraced emancipation, but not for the reasons we wished they had embraced it. They didn't do it because they cared, for the most part, about black people. They did it because they believed it was a tool to punish slaveholding oligarchs who had caused the problem in the first place, to defeat the Confederate nation, slave labor, kept the Confederate war machine going, and to remove in the future the one issue that seemed to threaten the sanctity of the Union from within. Get rid of slavery, and you will not have this kind of crisis again. We're now to the illustrated part of our program. There are only going to be five of these, and I'll race through them. I have no idea. Do I have two minutes left? I have 40 seconds. No, two minutes. <laughs> Here's the first one. 
This is a Republican lithograph from the 18th. I love, the one reason I hate PowerPoint is because I'll sit here and tell you what it says when you know perfectly well what it says. You can look at that. It captures the political and economic promise loyal Americans would have pronounced central to understanding why the union must and shall be preserved, as it says at the top, free speech. Free territory. You have two free laborers down here, uh, a pair of free laborers. They're the woodcutter uh, and the blacksmith. Uh, this is, and free territories means you will not have slavery blocking the expansion of this free labor-based emerging capitalist behemoth of the United States. This is a wonderful uh, illustration of notions of union. The next one gets us to, this is titled Southern Ass Talk Crazy. I love this. <laughs> And then in parentheses below Southern aristocracy, this from 1861 captures beautifully the widespread antipathy among friends of the Union toward what they considered to be slave-holding oligarchs or aristocrats who were antithetical to the small-r Republican promise of the founding generation. Number three takes us to the man, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, who's over there. I can't make my images as big as Scott did, otherwise we would just have a giant Grant looming. Uh, over the room here, but here it is, Harper's Weekly, uh, from February 1864, a Thomas Nast uh, depiction of Grant, and you'll see that there he is, Columbia is pinning a medal on him, a congressional medal, and he stands opposite the base of a flag-bedecked column inscribed Union. Uh, Grant's memoirs also capture beautifully the importance of Union, and they also put the lie to the notion that there was this easy reconciliation after the war. The idea that United States veterans just said after a few years, oh, it doesn't really matter which side you fought for, that is not right. Uh, <laughs> they were willing to reconcile on their terms. We were right, you were wrong, let's reconcile. The whole point of the war is to put the nation back together. So yes, put it back together, but let's don't be confused about who was right and who was wrong. Next one is from Frank Leslie's Illustrated Newspaper, which has at least two fans up here among the people at this. <laughs> this, is the, this is the poor third cousin uh, to Harper's Weekly. Everybody knows about Harper's Weekly. Nobody knows about Frank Leslie's. Frank Leslie's is better. Uh, that's just my unsupportable view. Well, this is Frank Leslie's depiction of the Grand Review of United States Armies on May 23rd and 24th, 1865, 150,000 veterans. Unbelievably important moment because it allowed these vast crowds to celebrate two things they saw at the core of what the United States was about. One, that union had been preserved, and two, it had been preserved by citizen soldiers who are the antithesis of hirelings. These are men whose main goal is to get out of the army, to get out of a uniform, to be back at their peaceful pursuits. Uh, that's the most commented on dimension of the Grand Review in our last image. We have one more to go. I couldn't resist putting this up. <laughs> Here we have Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and the uh, gnome-like Irish caricature of Sergeant Kilrain uh, over there on the right. In the film, Gettysburg Glory, obviously, is the, the most important uh, Hollywood depiction of the centrality of emancipation. But in, even in these films, in Gettysburg, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain explains what the war is about, this is the moment when, you, when the audience finds out what the war is about, and he puts it this way, talking to Kilrain. <clears throat> he says, all of us volunteered to fight for the Union, but now we're here for something new. We are, we are an army out to free other men. Uh, that resonates with us. That is not the way most soldiers in that Army of the Potomac would have put it in 1863.